0: Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, as we continue to study Romans chapter 9, I just pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace it, that we would trust it, and that we would proclaim it. In Jesus' name, amen. As I have progressed through Romans chapter 9, I was thinking if I, if I had to title all of my sermons... On Romans chapter 9, I would have to title it God on Trial. The reason why I think that that's an appropriate title for all of Romans chapter 9 is that Romans 1 through 8, Paul outlines how we have salvation, why we need salvation, why we need Christ. And he ends Romans eight talking about predestination. This idea that God chooses us, we do not choose him. And invariably, as in Paul's day and also in our day, the moment that you start talking about or teaching the doctrine of predestination, people who do not believe in predestination want to put God on trial. Does God have the right to do this or that? And this is what Paul has anticipated as he's gone through chapters one through eight and as he ends chapter eight in predestination. Chapter nine deals with this idea of predestination putting God on trial or answering those who would put God on trial. And as I mentioned before, we can call that theodicy. Justifying God's actions in an evil world. And as Paul goes about this, he does this by using the Hebrew people. And he points out at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, that the Hebrew people had rejected God, but that in no way caused God's promises to fail. And in fact, that was the first question that he posed in using the Hebrews to prove God's righteous actions. He poses three questions in the chapter. The first one we've already studied Have the promises of God failed? And he posed that in such a way in verse six in Romans nine, not that the word of God has taken no effect. And he goes on to point out that, yes, the Hebrews had received covenant promises. And even though there were Hebrews that rejected God, those were of the physical lineage of the Israelites. But Paul says, but there's a spiritual lineage. And in that spiritual lineage, those promises are made manifest that there is a spiritual lineage and those are his elect. Those are his elect. So Romans 8, predestination. Romans 9, he goes about to prove predestination in God's actions. And as he closes out that first question, have the promises of God failed? He closes in verse 10 of Romans 9 by saying, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so here in the first section, or the first question, Paul points out that God chooses. That God chooses and his promises are alive and well to those that he has chosen. That the people that rejected of the Hebrews, that rejected Christ, weren't of the spiritual lineage. Yes, they were of the physical lineage, but weren't of the spiritual lineage. So they're the spiritual lineage is alive and well in the fact that God has chosen those people. And He said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That leads us to question number two, which makes perfect sense when you think of it logically as a follow up question Is God unjust? Is God unjust? He asks this in Romans 9:14, "What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God?" In the English Standard Version, it actually says unjust. In other words, is God unjust because he chooses? Is God unjust because he chooses? And as we progress through these upcoming verses, what you're going to see is that is no, God is not unjust. In fact, Paul emphatically answers his question at the end of verse 14, certainly not. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And Paul says, certainly not. He then goes on and says, for he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills, he hardens. As we begin to study these verses, I want to first point out that God uses two people in answering This question, is God unjust? And when you look at those verses, who does he use? He uses Moses and he uses Pharaoh. As he is about to prove his point that God is not unjust in choosing. So he uses Moses and Pharaoh. And I think it's important to note that Moses and Pharaoh are on the world stage at the same time in the book of Exodus. And he uses not only Moses and Pharaoh, but he uses what we all know Moses and Pharaoh for in Exodus. He uses the story of God delivering his people out of bondage. And these were the two primary characters in the story. Moses and Pharaoh. In fact, Moses was given the task of delivering his people out of bondage. And this is recorded in Exodus 3, verse 7. Exodus 3, verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. This is God at the burning bush. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up from that land to a good and large land. To a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites. And the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The Hebrews were in bondage, weren't they? The Hebrews were in bondage. God meets Moses at the burning bush and he tells them, go and and bring my people out of bondage. Now, I want to point something out here. He's specific. Look at verse 10. That you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He's specific. He didn't say, I am going to end slavery over the face of the globe. And in fact, in the ancient world, slavery was common. It was everywhere. It was in every nation. But this is not what God said. God said, go and free my people. In other words, there was selection. There was specificity. He didn't free all of the people that were in bondage globally. He said, this is what you're going to do, and you're going to free my people. In other words, we could say they were elected, weren't they? That's what we would say doctrinally. That God specifically had a plan for the Hebrew people. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, This is how he describes the Hebrew people. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. He has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasurer above all peoples on the face of the earth. Now, people that... Want to fight predestination and they want to fight election. They want to say that it was a New Testament invention. That, that people are misunderstood in reading the New Testament and they've come up with this concept of predestination that doesn't fit with a biblical model. But I'm here to argue that predestination and election are throughout the whole Bible. That God chooses. And here you see with Deuteronomy, he tells the Hebrew people, I have chosen you to be a people for myself. God chooses and he has the right to do so. And in fact, when you look back at our focal passage in Romans 9, starting at the end of 14, where Paul says, certainly not, to this question, is God unjust? He quotes scripture in 15, for he says to Moses, quote, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. In other words, God makes the rules. God makes the rules. He's the creator, we're the created, he makes the rules. It amazes me whether in certain Christian camps or in certain conversations with the lost of people that do not know the Lord people want to put God on trial when it comes to this topic of predestination does he have the right to do that I don't think he has the right to do that he is the creator he can do whatever he wants to do he is a holy and righteous God And here he tells Moses, just as Paul reiterates in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. We shouldn't be surprised about that. He picks. And he says, and I have the right to pick. Now, there's a group of people in Christianity. If you're not familiar with the terminology, they're called Arminians. And they believe that God looks down the road and for example, since I'm a believer, I'll use myself as an example, that God looked down the road and he could see in 1976 where I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he says, well, since Monty's going to pick, I'm going to pick him. That's what Arminians believe. That. We have just a little bit of righteousness in our life, just enough to where we have the ability to pick God. Now, that's not scriptural. Now, Arminians are going to go to heaven. They'll just figure out that they were wrong when they get there. God picks. God picks. But I think that this doctrine is so important because, quite frankly, this doctrine will dictate how you live the rest of your Christian life. It really will. This doctrine dictates how you view Christianity and how you view yourself as a Christian. And the problem with believing that you've got just a little enough righteousness in your life that you pick, it leads people that believe that way to have all of these attaboys, right? Look at me. I picked. I figured it out. I picked. I did the right thing. And that's how you end up with legalistic churches. Because if you pick, you got something to crow about. You can brag about it because after all, you picked. But that's not how it works. God said, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He chooses it all throughout the Bible. Well, how does he pick? He doesn't look centuries ahead and see where you've got a little bit of righteousness. That's not how God does it. In fact, God doesn't use a system that we can understand. It's not by merit. It's not by works. And this is why Paul brings this up in Romans nine sixteen. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In other words, the mercy of God is not extended to those who have merit. After all, earlier in Romans... Paul wrote, there is none that are righteous. No, not one. None of us have merit. None of us have the ability to choose. None of us can stand before a holy and righteous God and plead a case that would find us acceptable before him. And he doesn't pick out of merit. He doesn't pick out of merit. When I was in the sixth grade, I was a short, little, chunky boy. I was not athletic. And this was before we started separating people out of classes that failed multiple, multiple times. So there was this boy in our class. His name was Rodney. And in eighth grade, Rodney drove to football practice. (laughs) And in the sixth grade, we played dodgeball and you had to deal with Rodney. And here I was, uh, short, heavy, slow. And you'd start divvying up for the teams. Well, naturally, whoever got to pick always wanted Rodney on their team. After all, he was years older than everybody else and happened to be extremely athletic. And then there was me. And I was always the last one to be picked. And it always ended up, can I survive Rodney? As Rodney could throw the ball, uh, which sounded like a cannon going off up against the gym wall. That's the world's methodology, right? In picking, that's the world's methodology. Pick the winner, pick the person that's going to win. That's not how God works. That's not how he works. And it's not just a New Testament thought, because look back at Deuteronomy 7. I already read verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. So let's stop right there before we go on. Why did God pick the Hebrews? Well, look at verse seven. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, he didn't pick the Hebrews because of merit. They were a tiny country. They were tiny. Now, he mentions picking because he wanted to keep the covenant promises that he gave the forefathers. Well, let's let's go there. Father Abraham, right? Was Abraham looking for God when God called him? No. Abraham had no merit. In fact... Abraham was a pagan. He didn't believe in Jehovah God. He didn't know Jehovah God. But God in His mercy picked Abraham. God in His mercy established the Hebrew people. He still operates that way. We've got the Old Testament example. Let's look at the New Testament example. Turn with me in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. "...for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Why are you glorying in the Lord? Because you recognize that there's nothing in your life that would give you merit or standing in front of a holy, righteous God For whatever reason, God chose you and it was not of merit. It wasn't for logic. It wasn't of worth. God chose you in his mercy. In his mercy, he chose us just as he chose the Hebrews. And it is his right to choose. Now, let's get a total picture of this. Because invariably, when you think about choosing, And especially if you're talking about choosing among Christians. For those that believe in Reformed theology, we concentrate on the positive aspect of that, right? Praise God, we're chosen. Can't understand it, but in His mercy, God chose us. But the real question, if we're thinking about putting God on trial, and as Paul poses this question, is God unjust? we've got to talk about the other group. We've got to talk about the other people. And I think as we talk about the other people, I think it's important for us to have the right frame of mind as we think about people who are not chosen, who won't won't choose God. What about them? Paul deals with this as we go back to our focal passage in Romans 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills, he hardens. So Paul not only uses Moses as an example, but he uses Pharaoh. And I want to talk about Pharaoh in Egypt just for a little bit to kind of set the stage of our discussion. Who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the leader of the great superpower of the day, wasn't he? And in fact, if I told you that we were going to all go down to Intercontinental Airport this afternoon and that we were going to board a plane to go to Egypt, immediately, as I mentioned Egypt, and that let's say that we were going to spend several days there, immediately, what do you think about when you think about Egypt? The pyramids, right? You think about Egypt, you think about the pyramids. And then if you, I want to take some time and I want to go to the pyramids, well, what else would you do? Well, you'd probably go to the Sphinx and you would go to Luxor, the ancient royal city. And you would take all of those things in. And you would look back at the awesomeness and the power Of ancient Egypt. And Pharaoh would fit within that context. As you actually would land in Egypt. You would recognize that at present. You are in what someone would call a developing country. In other words they didn't keep that status. They are 32nd in the world for gross domestic product which equates to roughly $12,000 per person. It's not a great place to live. They don't have any power anymore on the world stage. And it reminds me of a scripture found in Job, Job 12, 23, when Job writes, He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. In other words, God's sovereign, and he's at work. And for people in America who sit around and they think, oh, we're going to be at the top forever. We're always going to be number one. All we'd have to do is go around the globe, and we can visit every superpower that ever existed on the world stage and look at their ruins, God is in control. He makes nations great and destroys them. He chooses them. Not only does he choose nations, but he also chooses leaders. Daniel 2.21 says, And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God operates. His creation. Under his timetable. His power. His control. And he doesn't just work. With his elect. And I think that's important. And I think that's why Paul. Is bringing up Pharaoh. He doesn't say. I'm just working with the elect. He works with and utilizes every person in everything. And he used Pharaoh. Look at Exodus 9. In Exodus 9, God is about to unleash the ninth plague on the Egyptian people. He does 10 plagues overall. He's about to unleash number nine. And the Lord is conversing with Moses in Exodus 9. And he looks at Moses and he says, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, this is what Moses is supposed to tell Pharaoh. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that... I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth as yet you exalt yourself against my people and that you will not let them go. In other words, Pharaoh had pride. On the ninth plague, he still hasn't gotten it. He still hasn't gotten it. Guess what? By plague 10, He'll still have not gotten it. He'll still have remorse. He still won't recognize. He still won't bend the knee. And Paul brings this up in our focal passage. For this purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you. In other words, what he's telling Pharaoh is, as Moses is telling Pharaoh these words. He's telling Pharaoh At the end of the day, there will be none like me. No one gets the credit. It is all me. And I'll use you to tell that story. He uses everyone. Why? Because he is the creator. We're the created. He picks. He chooses. He uses. He is the Lord God Almighty. And he can do whatever he wishes. And as we look at this, invariably people that want to put God on trial come back and they say, well, that's not fair. Well, let's talk about fairness. Let's talk about fairness. Let's talk about justice. Let's remove Christ. Without Christ, we all deserve death. We all deserve judgment. I don't want justice. I don't want fairness. Because in that fairness, we all stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. This story isn't about fairness. It isn't about, is God unjust? What Paul is saying is, is that the story is about mercy. Is God unjust if He extends mercy? To a people that were already condemned? That's the question. And that question is no. That praise God we have a loving father. Who loved us so much. That he sent his son. So that we might have life. As he extended that mercy to the elect. Even though without Christ. Without the choosing. We would all stand in condemnation. And this is so important. You know, as we think about Ephesians 2 8, for by grace you have been through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Our faith, our recognition, in a holy and omnipotent God who loved us so much that he sent Jesus for us. That acknowledgement, that recognition that we grab hold of Jesus is a gift in itself. It didn't come through intellect. There's the smartest people in this world that are on this planet that will despise the story of God in Christ. It's not through Intellect. It's not through righteousness because how many times have we seen people in the world hold themselves up to be good, worthwhile people only to find out that they have clay feet just like the rest of us. It's not through intellect. It's not through righteousness. It's only through Jesus Christ. And He extends that mercy to us. And can He choose? Absolutely, because He is Lord. And when we accept this, that he chose us for his purpose, just as he chose the Hebrews for his purpose, as he chooses us, then it changes the dynamic of our worship in our beliefs. He is Lord. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you so much for your truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would just humbly submit to your power and your truth, recognizing that it's not us It's not in our own works of righteousness and not in our intellect, but we find ourselves bending the knee, recognizing that you extended mercy to us in spite of ourselves and that you chose us. I pray, Lord, that we'd always remember that, that we'd always remember the wonderful gift that we have through the cross and that we wouldn't take it for granted. We wouldn't use it. We wouldn't sin willfully, thinking that we can use that whenever we want. But we would just rest in your power and your grace and your mercy, and that we would be obedient servants in your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here who's never turned their life over to you, they've never given their life, they've never asked for forgiveness of sins, they've never invited Christ into their heart to be Savior and Lord. I just pray, Lord, that they would they would say that prayer today, that they'd ask for forgiveness, that they'd repent <coughs> from their sinful life. Lord, we just give you the praise and the glory in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m. followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.